All right, guys, before you um listen to this podcast, this podcast isn't about my life. Or this, um, what, what the fuck do I call it? This episode or whatever? I don't know, really. But this podcast is literally me reading my book because I couldn't find a damn audiobook. So, read this. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Just don't listen to it. I don't know. Maybe you listen to it when you're going to sleep. I don't fucking know. But I'll be eating my chips. So, like, sorry if you get annoyed by that. But yeah, I'm gonna start reading. Yeah, that's all I have to say. All right. So, Loki. I read the whole prologue to myself because I didn't want to. The fucking neighbors were outside and I was not about to read, talk. I think my dog is like dead right now, but anyways, I'll read chapter one. Chapter one, choose the good. My strongest memory is not a memory. It's something I imagined, then came to remember as if it happened. The memory was formed when I was five, just before I turned six. From a story my father told in such detail that I and my brothers and sister had a conjuring of our own cinematic version with gunfire and shouts. Mine had crickets. That's the sound I hear when my family huddles in the kitchen, lights off hiding from the feds who surrounded my house. A woman, a woman reaches for her glass of water and her silhouette is lightly lighted by the moon. A shot echoes like the lash of whip when she falls. In my memory, it's always mother and she has a baby in her arms the baby doesn't make sense i'm the youngest of my mother's seven children but like i said none of this happens a year after my father told us a story we gathered around one evening to hear it aloud from isaiah a person what the fuck a prosomy about emmanuel oh that's on bible shit <laughs> i fucking can't okay um shit where was i he sat on our mustard-colored sofa, a large Bible open in his lap. Mother was next to him. The rest of us were strewn, were strewn across the shaggy brown carpet. Butter and honey shall he eat, dead drowned, low and monotone, weary from a long day's hauling scrap, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose good. There was a heavy pause. We sat quietly. My father was not a tall man but he was able to condemn the room. He had such a presence. I thought I heard someone. Fuck, I hate reading. Okay. Um, he had such a presence about him. His solitary of an oracle. His hands were thick and leathery. The hands of a man who has been work hard all of his life. They grasped the Bible firmly. He read the passage aloud a second time, then a third, then a fourth, which each repetition the pitch of his voice climbed higher. His eyes, which moments before had swollen shut with fatigue, were now wide and alert. There was a divine doctrine here, he said. He would acquire of the Lord. The next morning, Dad purged from our fridge of milk, yogurt, and cheese. And that evening when he came home, his truck was fully loaded with 50 gallons of honey. Isaiah doesn't say which is evil, butter or honey, Dad said, grinning. As my brothers lugged the white tubes in our basement, 
but if you ask, the Lord will tell you. And Dad read the verse to his mother. She laughed in his face. I got some pennies in my purse, she said. You better take them. They'll be all the cents you got. Grandma had a thin, angular face, an endless store of fax Indian jewelry, all silver and turquoise, which hung in clumps from her from her spinely neck and fingers, because she lived down the hill from us, near highway, near the highway. We called her grandma down the hill. This was a way to distinguish her from our mother's mother, who we called grandma over the town, over in the town, because she lived 15 miles south, in the only town in the country which had a single stoplight and a grocery store. Dad and his mother got along like two cats, like two cats with their tails tied together. They could talk for a week and not argue about anything, but they were tethered by the devotion of the mountain. My father's family had been living at the base of the Buck's Peak for half a century. Grandma's daughters had been married and moved away. I hate reading, honestly. This is fucking bullshit. Alright, let me get back to where it was. Um, fuck. Where was I? I just burped. Um, my earbuds are about to die. Oh, my chips. I got my chips. Oh, we're guys. Okay, now I'm gonna eat one. Oh, I found where I was. Grandma's daughters had married and moved away, but father stayed. A building, shabby, white, yellow house, where he never quite finished. Just up the hill from his mother's at the base of a mountain, in a plunking, in plunking a junkyard, one of several, next to her manicured lawn. They argued daily about the mess from the junkyard, but more often about us kids. Grandma thought we should be in school. And not, as she put it, roaming the mountain like savages. Dad said public school was a ploy by the government to lead children away from God. I may as well surrender my kids to the devil himself, he said, as send them down the road to the school. God told Dad to share a revolution with the people who lived in the farm. In the farm in the shadow of Buck's Peak, on Sundays, nearly everyone gathered around from the church, a hickory-covered chapel just off the highway with a small, restrained steeple common to the Mormon churches. Dad cornered fathers as they left their pews. He started with their cousins, Jim, who listened naturally while Dad waved his Bible, explaining the sinfulness of milk. A little break. I'm eating. Okay. Jim grinned, then clapped Dad on the shoulder and said, No righteous. God would deprive a man of homemade strawberry ice cream on a hot summer afternoon. Jim's wife tugged his arm. As he slid past us, I caught a whiff of manicure. Manicure? Then I remembered. The big dairy farms north of the Bucks Peak. That was Jim's. After Dad took up preaching against milk, Grandma jammed her fridge full of it. She and Grandpa only drank skim, but pretty soon it was all there. 2% whole, even chocolate. 
She seemed to believe that it was an important line to hold. Every morning, my family sat around a large table of reworked red oak and ate either seven-grain seven cereal with honey and molasses or seven-grain pancakes with all honey. All right, so my AirPods died, so now I am recording this on my phone. Hmm. Um. Where was I? Um, honey and molasses they were talking about. Because there were nine of us. The pancakes were never cooked all the way, though. I didn't mind the cereal if I could soak it in milk, letting the cream gather against the grist and the steep into the pellets. But since the revelation, we've been having it with water. It was like eating a bowl of mud. It wasn't long before I began to think of all the milk spoiling in Grandma's fridge. Then I got into the habit of skipping breakfast each morning and going straight to the barn. I'd slop the pids, pigs and fill the trough for the cows and horses. Then I'd hop over the coral fence, loop around the bar, and stepped into Grandma's side door. On one such morning, I sat at the counter watching Grandma pour a bowl of cornflakes and said, how would you like to go to school? I wouldn't like it, I said. How do you know, she barked. You've never, you ain't never tried it. She poured the milk and handed me the bowl. She peached at the bar directly across from me and watched as I subbed spoonfuls into my mouth. We're leaving tomorrow for Arizona, she told me, but I already, but I already knew. She and Grandpa always went to Arizona when the weather began to turn. Grandpa said he was too old for Idaho winters. Cold put an ache in his bones. Get yourself up real early, Grandma said, around five, and we'll take you with us, put you into school. I shifted on my school. I tried to imagine school, but I couldn't. Instead, I pictured Sunday school, which I attended every week, which I hated. A boy named Aaron told all the girls that I couldn't read because I didn't go to school, and none of them talked to me. Dad said I can go, question mark. Wait, why did I say that like that? Dad said I can go. I said, no, Grandma said. But we'll be long gone by the time he realizes you're missing. She set my bowl in the sink and gathered and gazed at the window. Grandma was a force of nature, impatient, aggressive, and self-possessed. To look at her was to take a step back. She dyed her hair black, and this intensified her severe features, especially her eyebrows, which she smeared on every morning in thick, inky arches. She drew them, too large and made her face seem stretched. They were also drawn too high and draped the rest of her face features in an expression of boredom and almost sarcasm. You should be in school, she said. Won't dad just make you bring me back, I said. Your dad has made, your dad can't make me do damn, do a damn thing. Grandma stood squaring herself. If he wants you, he'll come and get you, she hesitated and for a moment looked ashamed. I talked to him yesterday. He won't be able to fetch you back for a while. He's behind on that shed he's building in town. He can't pick you up and drive to Arizona, not while the weather holds, and he can't put the boys, and the boys can work for long days. Grandma's scheme was well plotted. Dad almost worked from a sun, from sun up to sundown. I'm not even on page 10 yet, oh my God. Till sundown, in the weeks before the first snow. Trying to stockpile enough money for the hauling scrap barns, barns in the outlasting winters, winter when jobs were scarce. Even if his mother ran off with his youngest child, he wouldn't be able to stop working. Not until the fourth lift was encased in ice. 
I'll need to feed the animals before we go, I said. He'll notice I'm gone. For sure, if the cows break through the fence looking for water. I didn't sleep that night. I stepped on the, I sat on the kitchen floor, watched hours tick by. One a.m., two, three. At four, I stood, put my boots by the back door. They were caked in manicure. Manure! Oh my god, I've been saying that wrong the entire time. I actually want to kill myself now. Fucking manure. Oh my god. I was sure Grandma wouldn't let me let them into her car. I pictured them on her front porch, abandoned while I ran off shoeless to Arizona. I imagined that what would happen if my family discovered I'm missing. My brother Richard and I almost spent whole days on mountain. So it was likely no one would notice until sundown when Richard came home for dinner and I didn't. I pictured my brothers pushing out the door for dinner and I didn't. I pictured my brothers pushing out the door to search for me. They'd try the junkyard first, heaping, heaping iron slabs in case some stray street in the middle shifted and pinned me. Then they move outward, sweeping the farm, crawling it up trees into the barn attic. <clears throat> Finally, they turn to the mountain. It wouldn't be past dawn by them. By the moment, by the moment just before night sets in, when the landscape were visible as darkness and lightness darkens, and you feel the world around you more as you see it. I imagine my brother spreading over the mountains, searching the black forests. No one would talk. Everyone's thoughts would be the same. Things could go horribly wrong on the mountain. Cliffs appeared suddenly. Feral horses belonging to my grandmother ran wild over thick banks of water. Hermlock, there would be more than a few rattlesnakes. We've done this search before when a calf went missing in the barn. In the valley, you find an injured animal, or on the mountain, a dead one. I imagine my mother standing by the back doors, her eyes sweeping the dark ridge. When my, my father came home to tell her she hadn't found me. My sister Audrey would suggest someone ask Grandma, and my mother would say Grandma had left that morning for Arizona. Those moments would hang in the air for a moment, and everyone would know where I'd gone. I imagine my brother, my father's face, his dark eyes shrinking, his mouth clamming to a frown, and he turned to my mother. You think she'd choose to go? Low and sorrowful, his voice echoed. Then it was drowned out by silence from another conjured re- res- remembrance. Crickets, then gunfire, then silence. The event was a famous one. Tessa! 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 Oh, baby! Why is she annoying? Um. The event was a famous one. I would later learn, like, wandered near Wacko. But when my father first told us the story, it felt like no one in the world knew but except us. It began near the end of caning season, which other kids probably called it summer. My family almost spent the warm months boiling fruit for storage, which Dad said we'll need for the days of abomination. One evening, Dad was uneasy when he came from the junkyard. He paced the kitchen during dinner, hardly touching a bite. 
We'd have to get everything in order. He said there would be little time. We spent the day boiling, skinning peaches. By sundown, we filled dozens of mason jars, which were set in perfect rows, still warm for the pressure cooker. Dad surveyed her work, counting the jars, muttering to himself. He turned to the mother and said, it's not enough. That night, Dad was... I'm eating. Um... That evening, there's not enough. That night, Dad called for a family meeting. We gathered around the kitchen table because it was wide and long. He could see all of us. We had a right to know what we were against, he said. He was standing up at the head of the table. The rest of us perched over our benches, studying the thick planks of red oak. There's a family not far from here, Dad said. They're freedom fighters. They wouldn't let the government brainwash their kids in the public schools, so the feds came after them. Dad exhaled, long and slow. The feds surrounded the family's cabin, kept them locked in there for weeks. And when a hungry child, a little boy, snuck out to go hunting, the feds shot him dead. They scanned my brothers. I've never seen fear on Luke's face before. They're still in the cabin, Dad said. They keep their lights off, and they crawl on the floor away from the doors and windows. I don't know how much food they got. They may starve before the feds give up. No one spoke. Eventually, Luke, who was 12, asked if we can help. No, Dad said. Nobody can. They're trapped in their own home, but they got their guns. You can bet why the feds ain't charged in. He paused to sit, holding himself on the low bench, slow, stiff movements. He looked old into my eyes, worn out. We can't help them. Dinner's almost ready. Who knows? Um, what about that? We can't help them. We can't help them, but we can help ourselves. When the floods come to Buck Peak, we'll be ready. That night, Dag dragged a pile of old army bags from the basement and said they were our head for the hills bags. We spent that pack, night packing them with surprise. Herbal medicines, water purifiers, flint and steel. Dad had brought several boxes of military MREs, meals ready to eat, and we put as many as we could into our packs, imagining the moment when we having to flee the house, hiding ourselves in the wild plum trees near the creek. We'd eat them. Some of my brothers slow, stowed guns in their packs, but I only had a small knife. And even so, my bag pack was just as big as me by the time we finished. I asked Luke how to hoist it into a shelf in my closet, but Dad told me to keep it low where I could fetch it quick, so I slipped it with it in my bag. I practiced slipping the bag into my back and running with it. I didn't want to be left behind. I imagined our escape, a midnight flight to the safety of the princess, the mountain. I understood it was our alley. To those who knew she would be kind, but to intruders, she was pure in treachery. This would give us an advantage. Then again, if we were going to take cover on the mountain when the feds came, I didn't understand why we were cramming all these peaches. 
We could haul those. We couldn't haul those heavy mason jars up the pee. Or did we need the peaches so we could find a bunker in the house like the weavers and fight it out? Fighting seems less likely, especially days later when dad. Tessa! home with them more than more than a dillion a, oh my god I hate, I hate myself a dozen military surplus rifles mostly SKS there's silvers baton I've, I'm fucking dumb that's what it comes down to I haven't read in so long so I'm stupid um and I don't know words they're gonna Their guns aired, um, their guns arrived in narrow thin, tin boxes, were packed with costamile, a brownish substance that consistency of lard that had been stripped away. After they'd been cleaned, my brother Tyler chose one and set it on a sheet of black plastic, which he folded over the rifle, sealing it with yards of of silvery duct tape. I'm stupid. Hoisting the bottle over his shoulder, he carried it down the hill, dropped it next to the red railroad car, then he began to dig. When the hole was wide and deep, he dropped the rifle into it. I watched him cover his dirt, his muscles swelling from the exercise, his jaws clenched. Soon after, Dad brought a, a machine to manufacture bullets from spent cartridges. Now he could last longer in a standoff, he said. I thought of my head for the hill bag waiting in my bed and the rifle hidden near the rail car and began to worry about the bullet making machine. It was bulky and bolted to an iron work stand in the basement. If we were taken by surprise, I figured we wouldn't. Oh, damn, there's a fucking horse live. Shit. I think the damn neighbor is out. I really hope that's not Mason. They don't kind of disgusting. That's so dead. Um. I wondered if I should bury. Um. It was bulky. Okay. If we were taken by surprise, I figured we wouldn't have time to fetch it. I wondered if we should keep it. Should bury it too with the rifle. We kept on bottling peaches. I don't remember how many days passed or how many jars we had to our stores before Dad told us more of the story. Randy Weavers had been shot. Dad said, his voice thin and erratic. He left the cabin to fetch his son's body. 
but the feds shot him. I never seen my father cry, but the tears were dripping down and a steadily stream from his nose. He didn't wipe them. He just let them spill onto his shirt. His wife heard the shot and ran to the window, holding their baby. Then came the second shot. Mother was sitting with her arms folded, one across the other on her chest. The other clammed. The other clammed over her mouth. I started. I stared at her spectacle. Linum, Liam. While Dad told us how the baby had been lifted from his mother's arms, his face smeared with her blood. Until that moment, some part of me had been wanting, wanted, had wanted the feds to come, but had craved the adventure. Now I felt real fear. I pictured my brothers crouching in the in the dark, with their sweaty hands slipping down the rifles. I pictured mother, tied, parched, drawing away from the winter. When was okay? Um, from the winter, from the window. I pictured myself lying flat on the floor, still and silent, listening to sharp chirps of crickets in the field. Then I saw mother stand and reach for the kitchen tap. A white flash, aurora gunfire, and she fell. I leaped to catch the baby. Dad told us then. Dad never told us the end of the story. We didn't have a TV or radio, so perhaps he hadn't learned how it ended himself. The last thing I remember him saying was, "Next time it could be us." Those words would stay with me. I would hear their echo and the chirp of the crickets and the squish of the peaches dropping into the glass jar and the metallic clink of the SKS being cleaned. I would hear them every morning when I passed by the railroad car, paused the chicken wheat, and bull thristle growing here where Tyler had buried his cycle. Long after Dad had forgotten the revelation in Isaiah, Isaiah and Mother would again heaping plastic jars of Western family 2% into the fridge, I would remember the weavers. It was almost 5 a.m. I returned to my room, my head full of crickets and gunfire. In the lower bunk, Audrey was snoring. Caden hummed, that invited me to do the same. Instead, I climbed up on my bed, crossed my legs, and peered out the window. Five passed, then six, then seven. Grandma appeared, and I watched her pace up and down her patio, turning every five moments to rage up the hill at her house. Then she and Grandpa stepped into the car, pulled out of the, onto the highway. When the car was gone, I got out of bed, ate a bowl of bran, bran with water. Outside, I was greeted by Luke's goat, Kamizi, who nibbled my shirt as I walked by the barn. I passed the go-kart, Richard, which was building from an old lawnmower. I slopped the pigs. Um, I slopped the pigs, filled through, through and moved Grandpa's horses to a new pasture. After I'd finished, I climbed the railroad car and looked over the valley. It was easy to pretend a car was moving, speeding away. Then, any moment, the valley might disappear from me. I spent hours playing the fantasy in my head, but today, real wouldn't take it. I turned west, away from the fields, faced the peak. The princess was always brightest in spring, but, in, but after comforts emerged from the snow, the great dean green leaf needles seeming almost black against the tanny browns of the soil and bark. It was autumn now. I could still see her but her face. But she was fading. The reds and yellows of the dying summer obscured from her dark form. Soon it would snow in the valley that the first snow would melt on the mountain. But it would linger, burying the princess until spring. 
when she would appear watchful. And that's the end of chapter one. And I think it is dinner time. I hope so. It's kind of weird. I thought the cozies would be gone by now. But it seems that Baker's still home. Mason's probably drunk. I hate him. Hate that bitch sometimes. But it's whatever. I'm going to eat fucking dinner now because I'm so damn hungry. Oh, wait, are you guys still on? You are. Why does it take me, like, 20 minutes to read 10 pages, though? Well, I'm going inside.